Hi everyone and welcome to Jane's Talks, another episode for you today. Really great to be here um, and I'm really excited today. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. Um, we've got um, Alexander Shire with us today, so welcome uh, Alexander, great to have you on. Delighted to be here, thank you for asking. Um, it's my, my pleasure. Uh, Alexander's got loads of wisdom on um, how to read the Bible, in particular how to read this, um, the Gospels. Um, I've been reading a bit, a bit of his book and it's just unbelievable. And if you listen to Rob Bell's podcast, you'll have heard him before and you'll know how awesome he is. So we're just going to dive right in. And so, yeah, Alex, just tell us a bit about what, like, who you are, what you do. Uh, <laughs> I keep asking myself, what do I do? Um, I, uh, uh, right now today I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is my home, but largely over the last two years, I've been working, uh, between New Zealand and Australia, um, bringing this whole new lens on the gospel. So I do retreats, seminars, talks. I consult with communities and organizations and, uh, spiritual organizations. So a little bit of everything. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, now, what the really the real thing I wanted to focus on today was um, this this pattern of, of reading the Gospels that you've explored in um, your a lot of your work in your book. I think your books had two different names. Is that right? Um, we have the Harper edition from four years ago, which is the Hidden Power of the Gospels, and then I had this wonderful chance to rewrite that. Uh, just about a year and a half ago, hmm. and the title is Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation. Hmm. And and I really love the title Heart and Mind because it's, that's hmm. exactly what this is about. I want a spirituality which is neither about the mind alone or the heart alone, but the integration of the two. And hmm. I don't want any community that asks me to leave one of those at the door. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's all interconnected, isn't it? That's yeah, one. Yes. I'm a great believer in interconnected spirituality. Um, yeah. So, okay. So let's talk about. I'll talk about this now. What's this pattern? This pattern called? Um, and and then we'll go through the. And um, how did you? How did you kind of come to this? This idea. How did it kind of reveal itself to you? And then we'll go through the four stages after that. So, just begin with talking about uh, the quadratus. I, I coined this name Quadratus because I, I wanted um, a sense of how the four forms a whole or a wheel or a cycle. Mm. And right at the start, I might say that a cycle is like a spiral. It's ever going around, um, and you can be in all four places at once, which most of us are. So mm. <clears throat> I just started with the idea of fourness, and so the quad, and the rest of the term is just I wanted something that felt like movement and felt like walking. And so it, it, it's a word that I made up, but it has come to, to, to stand for my work, which are the four paths that make one cycle of a journey. That's fantastic. Yeah, and it is amazing. Um, and it's about, it's to do with the four Gospels, isn't it? Uh, am I right, the four stages? Right. I mean, I've... It, through all of my psychological work um, in the in the 80s and the 90s, and I'm trained as a Jungian psychologist, mm. um, I came to understand how so many of the world's myths and so many of the world's spiritual traditions understand life as a cycle of four. Now, it could be seven, it could be 11 and a half, don't get locked into just four, but four is a very lively metaphor. And for a long time, I was teaching about this fourness, and I kept asking myself, does the fourness have something to do with the four Gospels? Could it have some, could, it, could this be another answer to how we ended up with these particular texts? Mm. And uh, back in the late 60s and the early 70s, I had the great honor of um, listening to uh, Joseph Campbell when he mm. came to my university every springtime to lecture in the theology department. And he was lecturing on scripture as great myth. Mm. And, of course, he was teaching us about the hero or the heroine's journey, which he also names in four parts. And the, four, the first part is the summons to the journey. 
And the second part is trials and obstacles. And the third part is receiving the gift, or his word, the boon. And the fourth part is the return to community. And all great stories, opera, uh, mythology, uh, the scriptures, has this pattern in it. And so I, 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 as, as far back as the early 70s, I had this thought, well, is the pattern in the Gospels? And, and many people have written about how the pattern is in each one of the four texts. But my question is, do the four Gospel texts become one story? Do, do they hold together? Is there a sequence? Is there a way that the four texts actually form uh, one cycle of the journey. So rather than seeing the cycle in each one of the Gospels, do the four Gospels become, in effect, one Gospel in four chapters? Mm. And that's what my, that's in part what my work is about, is, is to show how in the sequence of Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, it's a seamless story of everyone's journey. Or in Joseph Campbell's words, it's the seamless story of the hero or the heroine's journey that Matthew, the whole text of Matthew, is about the summons to start the journey again. And the entire text of Mark is the story of how we move through great trials and obstacles. And the story of John is how we receive the gift or the boon. And the story of Luke is uh, not simply returning to community, but returning to community to serve, uh, to serve others and to serve self um, through wider vitality. So in this way, and this was the stunning moment for me that happened uh, in the year 2000, was I was reading um, a book uh, by an Anglican in London, uh, the Reverend Robin Griffith-Jones, his right. book, Four Witnesses. Mm -hmm. And Robin, uh, in talking about the gospel texts, summarized what we believe was going on at the, in the community at the time the gospel was revealed. And through all of my psychological and spiritual work, I looked at that narrative of the community and I went, I know this question. This is one of the four great questions of every spiritual journey. And I, and I just raced through Robin's book, coming to realize that what he, what he had synthesized so beautifully was the key that I had been looking for for 30 years. That mm. Matthew's text is not simply the profound story of Jesus. It's actually something even more, more powerful and efficient. It's Jesus teaching us how to face change. The entire story is written to the question, when we're in a change moment, how do we work with it? And Mark's text is written to the question, how do we move through great trials and obstacles? And John's text is written to the question, how do we receive joy, and what's the meaning of joy? And Luke's question, Luke was writing to the question, how do we mature in service? How do we live this new understanding of the Christ um, in diverse community and in a world that may have differing values? How, how do we bring love and compassion to everyone, not just ourselves? Mm. Anyway. Okay, so let's... Let's go into these in a bit more detail. So, so the first one, the first part, um, uh, Matt for Matthew, how do we face change? So just, you know, unpack that for us sure. in more detail. Let, let's look at what Robin Griffith Jones gave me. Uh, he describes uh, the text of Matthew coming out of the community of Antioch. Now, Antioch is about a, a week's walk north of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And it's in the 70s of the first century. And what's just happened, uh, Rome sought to end the Jewish religion. Now, this is different from Hitler. Hitler wanted to end the Jewish people. Rome wanted to end the Jewish religion. Mm. And to achieve this, their means were they were going to annihilate the temple. They were going to massacre the Jewish priesthood. And they were going to tear down great sections of the holy city of Jerusalem. And they almost accomplished all of their objectives. Uh, they did annihilate the temple. They did tear down much of Jerusalem. And the Jews didn't go back into the holy city for almost 50 years. 
and they massacred almost all of the members of the Levite and the Cohen tribe, but not quite. So that today, the, the biological line of the priesthood endures, but the priesthood can't be reconstituted until the temple is rebuilt. And that's part of the pressure around Judaism and the temple in Jerusalem. However, go back to the 70s of the first century. Yeah. What was the emotional impact on them, and why is it important to us? The Jews at that moment felt that this was the apocalypse. They felt that in the massacre of the priesthood and the destruction of the temple, mm -hmm. that Yahweh had ripped up the covenant with Abraham, and that now the world would be destroyed again either by fire or water. Wow. Now, what, why is this so important to Christians? Because at this point in our history, we're Jewish Christians. We've not moved away from our Judaism one inch or one centimeter. Uh, all we've done profoundly is we've add, added the life and the death of, of Jesus the Christ to our Judaism. So we too are bewildered and bereft in the loss of both the priesthood and the temple. And we're saying, how can we move forward? How is this the end? Or is there something in this moment that the Christ is leading us to do differently or to do new? And at this moment, these Jewish Christians hear a different answer than the rest of Judaism. And their answer is, we're not obligated to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And we're not obligated to reconsecrate the Jewish priesthood. That in the presence of the Christ, we now understand something that is a new moment in human consciousness, yeah. which is that God is present everywhere. Now, just stop for a moment. Yeah, now, I know. Today, yeah. today, this is a common thought. But in human history, we... We do not see this anywhere in the West. It may, there may be some pockets of it in the East, but at this point in the in the 70s of the first century, this is this is a quantum leap in human consciousness to take spirit away from water and mountaintop um, and forest and well. Mm. Not saying that the spirit is not also very deeply there but saying that spirit can be accessed everywhere. Because all religion up to that point, uh, the Celts, uh, the, the Egyptians, everybody tied their god or their goddess to a particular place on the planet. Yeah. And you had to go to that place to be in touch with the god or the goddess. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. And Christianity now says, our god is where the community gathers. Our God is a table everywhere. Brilliant. And this is revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we, we unhook ourselves from Jerusalem. Yeah. And we also now say, and our priesthood is the priesthood of all believers. So and it's very important that we understand that we don't develop Christian priesthood until we unhook ourselves from Jewish priesthood. There was, we, our priesthood up to this point was the Jewish priesthood. Yeah. Now we move forward with the sense that the priesthood is all of us together, wherever we gather. And the risen, was, the risen one is in our midst. Now, okay, that's back then. But what does this text say to us today? Mm. It, it has these profound teachings because it's a universal text about the way each one of us faces a change moment. And uh, I, 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 let's just look at, at this very odd way that Matthew opens that most of us just skip over. Yeah. Uh, largely because it's a whole series of men's names. Yeah. And we think, what does this have to do with us? Well, the story underneath has everything to do with all of us. Mm. Because... The genealogy in Matthew is saying, if you believe that the Christ comes to you because you're morally pure, well, let me tell you about David, 
who is both named in the genealogy is both an adulterer and an accomplice to murder. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or, or let me tell you about Tamar, who is Judah's daughter-in-law. Her husband dies, killed, and she dresses as a temple prostitute and prays for God to bring Judah, her father-in-law, to lie with her so that she might conceive and be and continue to be part of the line of the Messiah. So yeah. all of these little strange twists in the genealogy are, are exactly the purpose of it, is in a moment of change, if you think that God is writing with a very strange line, you're right. Mm -hmm. And if you think that moral purity uh, is the way of spirituality, mm, let's do a rethink. Yeah, absolutely, because Jesus descended from all these guys who are just like, you know, murderers and adulterers and you know, totally not perfect at all, you know. No, um, and this is the line of the Messiah. This is precisely the line of the Messiah. Um, yeah. And you're, you're hearing my Arabic uh, and my Aramaic. I, I'm the son of Lebanese immigrants in the United States. And, um, and for us, we say the word, um, most of the English-speaking world says Messiah. We say Messiah. And the very oh, last yeah. vowel of it is, is the out-breath. Okay. So, uh, and and the genealogy is also saying, if you think that this is the day the world ends, or if you think this is this is the era when the world ends, rethink that. Yes, this is a dark day. Yes, the sun has gone down, and now we're into a nighttime experience. But in Judaism, the nighttime is not the end. The nighttime is the beginning. This is the power of observing the day changing at sunset and knowing that when you have nighttime experiences, those are not apocalypse end time experiences. Those are actually the experience of God's new beginning in us. It is, it is womb time. It is pregnancy time. Uh, sure, our cognitive minds are not going to understand yet or to clearly see but something very powerful is being born. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> now go on. Well, and, and, and so, uh, uh, I mean, I, 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 we could look at, at, at Joseph, which is a powerful piece here, but um, uh, and if you want me to talk about Joseph, I could, or, I, or we, could, we could move later in the gospel and talk about some other sections. Wow, there's so much here. Um, <laughs> I think we could probably talk for hours on each of the on each of these four stages, couldn't we? I mean, there's uh, just yeah. Tell us about tell us a bit about Joseph, uh, and then yeah. Well, Joseph, Joseph. Now, if this text were being written as the biological life story of Jesus, of course the evangelists would be obligated to bring Mary more into the story. But when you understand that the text is perhaps being written to the question of how we face change, Joseph becomes um, the great avatar or the great meditation on change here because Joseph is the upstanding Jewish man who's tried to do everything as best he can, and now he's betrothed to Mary, uh, and he's all excited, we assume, about this new life with Mary. And then something totally unexpected happens. And I love that there's a Jewish phrase about such a moment. This is really happening, and you're totally unprepared. And this is Joseph, and this is each one of us. Because this text is written to us uh, about the moments in our lives where there's a financial downturn. This text is written mm -hmm. to us about the moment that a doctor says to us, we need more tests. This text is written to us when our spouse says, honey, we need to talk. This text is written to us in, in all of those moments that sort of leap upon us. We, we thought life was just going along with sort of an, a natural progression and everything's okay. And then something happens. And, and our world cracks open, cracks apart, and we find ourselves... Um, not knowing the rules. Yesterday, everything seemed to make sense, and suddenly nothing makes sense. 
That's what this text is teaching us about. And so Joseph is the great um, hero of this moment because he is obligated as a Jewish man to not complete the betrothal with Mary because to complete this, he would bring shame on his father's name. But he has an internal experience of spirit who gives him a message that is going to set him on a different path from the tribe. He suddenly is, he, he, a man of the tribe, he of the line of David with all of this tribal responsibility Mm. now has a decision, which is, which he's going to find himself in a very lonely place if he follows through. And in fact, we know what happens. Joseph doesn't stay in Bethlehem, where he, where he's a citizen, but he goes to live in Nazareth as an outcast because when he decides to honor and to take Mary, he brings shame on his father's name and is therefore driven out, emotionally and physically driven out from the tribe. Now, can do any of us today relate to the feeling of being separated uh, from the tribe, being separated from conventional wisdom, being separated from how everybody else seems to be thinking. Yeah, I think I think a lot of us do. <laughs> um, definitely. Um, you see, when we see when we look at it like this, it's a whole different ball game. It puts a whole different spin on the story. It changes everything because he then then you start to think about well that means that Jesus was in Jewish society was the son of an outcast. Yes. You know. Yeah. So yes. right from right from birth he is the Christ is connecting with the outcast, you know, as one of them. You know. He's not just becoming human, he's becoming an outcast. Right. Um And there's this little detail in Matthew that we because we put up our crushes every Christmas, we forget what's actually in the text. And the text says that Mary and Joseph are citizens of Bethlehem. There's no journey to Bethlehem in Matthew because the moment of change comes to us right in the middle of our habitual life. We're just doing what we've always done. Yeah. And there's an earthquake. Yeah. And where do the Magi go to worship? They go to the house Mm. in Bethlehem. Yeah. Where Mary and Joseph are living. Yeah. <laughs> and and be, yeah. because this, this oh. text, every line, every detail of this text is opening up for us the experience of what it's like the moment that we understand that we have to grow. Yeah. The invitation to grow may have been going on a long time. A long time before we finally give a yes to it. Wow, and that's just from, this is just from the first few chapters as well. I mean, wow. <laughs> oh, see, it's just, oh, I knew this would be good. Um, so do, do we, should we go into Mark and just sort of do a tap, in, a tap into Mark? Yeah, let's go into, let's go into Mark, yeah, um, the second path, how he moves through suffering. Um, so, and, yeah. and I just want to say that when you, when you read the gospel in this sequence, it's, it's seamless. So, uh, at the end of Matthew, the disciples are sent out, and that's the end of the summons to the journeys to be sent forth. And in the universal story, where does everybody go after they're sent forth? They go to a wilderness. They go to a place of great trial and obstacle, which is the Gospel of Mark. So when we open the Gospel of Mark, what's the very first story we, we're going to read there? We're going to read about this John the Baptist who's in a wilderness, crying out, mm. you know, make straight the, the paths of our God. Well, well who, what's going on at the community? Why is this text being, being written for them? We are pretty sure that Mark was the first text written. It's written to the community of Jewish Christians in the city of Rome in the year 64 of the first century. And for those historians, when you say the year 64 Rome, you're probably immediately going to know we're talking about the Great Fire. Rome is set on fire, and it burns day and night for a week. And who's the emperor? Nero. And Nero's got a problem, because the parts of Rome that burned 
are exactly the parts that he had just been advocating to the Senate be torn down and rebuilt in a classical architecture that would rival Athens. Essentially, Nero has told the Senate that he thinks their houses are an architectural dump. And then he's surprised when they don't like his plan. So this fire accomplishes what he couldn't get the Senate to, to vote on. Right. right. And so people are whispering uh, about the emperor. And we know that the life of an emperor can be very short when mm. the Senate turns against him. Yes, absolutely. So he's got to finger somebody real quickly. Yeah. And everybody could have predicted that he was going to finger the Jewish community because Rome had already thrown the Jews out of the city twice in this century. But we don't know how it happened, but somehow he was convinced to finger not the whole of the Jewish community, but just one section of it, the Jewish Christians. And he was convinced that this figure of Jesus was a figure that was traitorous against him. And so, therefore, he was going to eradicate these Jewish Christians. And he, and he passed, uh, and, and uh, he condemned all of them to execution. And they were going to be killed by being taken to the Circus Maximus, which is where the fire had started. So the Circus Maximus is gone, but what they did is they built a temporary Circus Maximus on the other side of the Tiber, you want to guess where that was? I'm not, I'm, I must admit, I'm not hot on my, um, okay. my history, is it? But most people don't know this. This temporary Circus Maximus is where St. Peter's is today. Oh, really? And, and, wow. and when you stand in the Basilica, the plaza before the Basilica, you're on the grounds of the old Circus Maximus where all of these early Christians were martyred. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and so, so Nero now surrounds um, the Jewish ghetto, mm. and he sends his soldiers in, and they're knocking on doors, and the head of the household has to answer for everyone who lives there, are you a believer in the Christus, the Christ? And if they say yes, they and everyone there are going to be taken to the Circus Maximus and executed. Now, now let's look at why this text of John the Baptist is so powerful as the opening of Mark. Because we know John the Baptist is going to be killed on the whim of a drunken governor. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my so goodness. <laughs> all, the, all the Christians of Rome can identify that they now, in this moment of great trial and suffering, they, too, are a John the Baptist. Yeah. And they, too, are going to proclaim something beyond the grave. Wow. Wow, that's, that's, oh, wow, that's incredible. That's, and, yeah. so bring it to us today. Yeah. When, when we start a spiritual journey, or we start to go deeper on a spiritual journey, what happens is, we don't get paradise. We don't get the garden. What we get right after we start the journey is we get more confusion. Uh, we seem to get more pain. We seem to get more trials. We seem to get more obstacles. And what I always try to remind myself and others is what's happening is we're actually coming up against everything that we've shunted aside and denied and not wanted to think about for a long time or not wanted to feel. So it's actually old pain. Even yeah. though we're feeling it fresh, it's old pain. It's, it's everything that we pushed aside yeah. because we weren't answering the path of growth. But nevertheless, we've got to go through this time of unlearning. We've got to go through this time of being uncertain. It's, it's a holy uncertainty. Yeah. We've got to go through this time of feeling all the feelings and thinking all the thoughts and not knowing where we're going, and not knowing how long it's going to last, and not knowing what the new vision is going to be like, etc. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I, I mean, if you take it on, John's in the wilderness, and 
Jesus comes and meets him in the wilderness, doesn't he? Yes. And then Jesus goes into the and, wilderness. And John finds a way to thrive in the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and that's actually what this text will show us. Is This text is not about wallowing in suffering. This text is about recognizing that every one of us suffers in some way. But, but that suffering doesn't have to be misery. There is a way to be of it and to move through it. And yeah. it's not it's not where the where the full stop or the period is. It's it's where the comma is. There's something quite radiant that comes on the other side of this experience. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's just blown my mind that has really. Um Yeah, and it's all there. It's all there. We just have to it's look all- for it. Yeah. It's not like this is some Thing we have to kind of search out. It's it's all already in there. We just need to, yeah. Wow, <laughs> this is great. So each one of these texts really opens up as the universal experience. But we there there is a code that we need to know in a way. It's like we need to know how to not just look at the historical story, but understand that the historical story is written as a universal experience for each one of us. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Which leads us kind of into the next, the next one, which is um, how we receive joy. You know, which yeah, is John. John. The, um, I, I'm gonna. I mean, I, if, if we started talking about the prologue of John, we would be here forever. But I, I do want to say this: John, in the prologue, names the the core Christian experience which is that we are a tradition of eternity. And um, for those of us who know, like, uh, either the Anglican or the Roman Gospels for Christmas, uh, the last Gospel of Christmas Day is always the prologue. And the reason that it's the prologue is that we need to understand that Christianity did not begin when Jesus was born. Christianity is a tradition of eternity. And Jesus finishes out the message and the reality that we had historically confused so that we honor the birth of the Messiah not as something that overturns our human evolution and our human life, but as something that reveals to us the second half of the story that we weren't seeing. Mm. So um, the Christ is the second person of the Trinity. Yeah. Jesus doesn't begin when Jesus is born. Well, no. I mean, even, you know, even, I mean, even from a purely kind of reading the Bible perspective, there's, there's passages in the Old Testament where, it talks about somebody else being present with them, like um, right. I think it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fire, and there's somebody else in there with them. You know, um, so it's like, yeah, he's there. You know, it's it's all the way through. It's not right. It's the, not, for us as a Christian, the entire gospel is. I mean, the entire Bible is the story of the Christ. The story of the Christ doesn't start uh, when we open the text of Matthew. Uh, the story of Christ is there in Genesis. Mm. And we see that in the 5th and the 6th century icons of, of the creation of the world. And I, I love it. It's like if, if you go in, in search of these icons, you'll look up and, and you'll see this old man image up in the corner with sort of puffy cheeks and lines coming out of, out of his mouth, God the Father. And standing in front of God the Father is Jesus the Christ. And out of Jesus the Christ's body is coming the cosmos. Wow. <laughs> I've not seen that, actually. But, uh, I'd love to see that. That sounds amazing. Um, so um, if we move just a little bit further into the text of John, there is this incredible moment that most of us have missed, and it's the naming of Simon as Petros. Right. We're going to name Simon as Peter, Petros. Yeah. Now, what is, what, is P, what is Petros? Petros can be translated as either rock or stone. 
Mm -hmm. Why is this so important in the Middle East? Why is this so important in the Mediterranean? Because every one of the Mediterranean cultures has the metaphor of stone being the incorruptible substance. Yeah. This naming of Peter is not about a figure back in history. It's like this text is about each one of us. Each one of us is Petros. Each one of us has gold or a diamond. That's, that's our deepest identity. And nothing we ever do can corrupt that. We can cover it over. We can bury it. We can choose to forget it. Yeah. We can run away from it. We've got all those choices. We can make them. But your identity is something which is the substance of God, which can never, ever, ever be taken away from you. And that's, that's the root of joy, is to come into that experience that each one of us is made of the substance of God. And, and that's, then yeah. the, rest, the rest of this gospel is going to flow out of that reality. Mm. Yeah, we're all, made, we're all made of that incorruptible substance of, of God. We're all, in a sense, the rock, you know. Yes. Um, we're all gold. We're all a diamond, whatever, yeah. your, whatever your metaphor is. And, of course, that's scandalous for some people because it's, like, I mean, I've been writing a book on grace, and one of the things that I say is that it's, it's difficult to receive grace for, you know, for things we've done wrong, but it's arguably even more difficult to receive the truth of grace that you are, that we are all loved and accepted and valued and belong as we are, not what we do, but we already belong, you know, and that's actually harder to receive than, oh, I've done something wrong and I need grace and forgiveness, you know, and, and this kind of exactly is, is basically what that's about. It's, you know, we're all this precious stone, diamond, gold, whatever, and we need to receive that. And when we do, we can find joy because, yeah, we know that we're enough. Right. And, and that leads um, to, the, to the very next text right after that. And because we haven't understood that Petros is about the beauty and the, and, the, and the stoneness and the goldness of each one of us. Then we get to the wedding at Cana. Well, what, are we, what we've got at Cana is we've got six stone jars filled with oh, water yeah. that it's going to become wine. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't think of that. Oh, my goodness. And yeah. six in Judaism always refers to relationship or marriage. We're not talking about marriage here as simply man and a woman. This is the marriage of humanity to each other. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh man. So we're all we're the, and of course, they put the water in the jars and it's dirty water and it comes out and it's the best wine you could ever taste. So, But so it's not the wine you can serve at the beginning because we have to go through the process of growth and transformation. Yes, that's right. So we're the jars, you know. And then, so all this stuff gets put into us, yeah. and and in time, God brings it, you know, or the Christ brings that out and transforms it into something really pure and really beautiful and really, which is almost the metaphor of the stone in the first place, you know. Oh wow, <laughs> I never read that story like that before. That is, uh, this actually gets me more excited to read the Bible because I. I grew up in the church, so I've been going to church since I was born, basically. So it can really easily become kind of staid and boring of, know that story, know that story, you know. But, I mean, when I first heard you on Rob's pod- podcast and, and, and today, you know, it's just bringing the Bible to life again because it's, you know, and I think this is true, I think that's true for anyone. Everyone will be listening will be, will be exactly the same because it's just um, completely... I say revolutionary, but it's not—it's not a new idea, you know. Um, this is just ideas that have always been there that we're just beginning to understand. So, um, and, I, and I didn't. What was the context of John? We think John was being revealed to the community in Ephesus. There's right. a, there's a variant thought of Alexandria, but the two are very alike. And what's so powerful about this is it is a community of diversity. Ephesus or Alexandria 
had uh, peoples all the way to India uh, in these cities. They were very ethnically diverse. They were very, um, uh, uh, both communities had very strong women's communities uh, as, as part of them. And so here we have um, the need to make, to know that diversity is not an obstacle, but diversity is a jewel. That mm. we are, that at the beginning of Christianity, we are not going to be a tradition of groupthink. We're not going to be a tradition that asks people to leave either heart or mind at the door. It's like, come to a table where we are all stone vessels filled with water, and there is going to be an energy in our honest, full revelation with each other that will transform all of us into something more. And I, what I hear today, it just makes my heart hurt. It, when I Around the world, wherever I go, I hear how people feel relationship and community limits them rather than unleashes them. Mm -hmm. And Christianity at its best is, here's a group of people who are freeing you to be your most creative, vital self. And we want you in this space as you are. We don't want you leaving any part of yourself outside because then we can't be who we're meant to be in God's eyes. So mm -hmm. John's text, and this is most likely my next book, which I roughed in, is about how the text of John is about how to live this new diversity. Um, yeah. you know, sexual orientation, gender, ethnicity, whatever it is, bring it here. We need it. Don't hide it. Be it. Let us be transformed together into an even more radiant expression of the Christ. Yeah. yeah. Love that. I just love that. John's always been my favourite gospel as well, actually, I've got to say. Um, you know, and I, I love I love the uh, the metaphors as well. It goes through the, you know, the six signs, and then the seventh sign is the resurrection or something. Um, and then, the, oh no, the eighth sign is the resurrection, and that's the beginning of a new week. You know, right. it's so it's so well written that book. It's just um, unbelievable. It's um, it's one of the the only uh, innovations of Christianity. Uh, we were the ones who developed the idea of the eighth day. And the eighth day is the Alpha and the Omega. The eighth day is Sunday. And Sunday is the last day of the old week. And at the same time, it is the first day of the new week. Mm. Because in, in the Jewish mythology of those days, um, God we got to the seventh day and God rested. Um, in Jesus the Christ, on the eighth day, we become co-creators of the cosmos with God. An mm. awesome responsibility. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It and that's really why is. many of our baptistries are eight-sided. And that's why you'll hear the name the eighth day in, in the Gospels. It stands for Sunday. The eighth day of creation. The day that God and us pick up being co-creators together. Beautiful. That is so beautiful. Um, and challenging as well <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. Uh, I mean, it's sort of, you know, th those people who used to say, well, if God had wanted us to fly, God would have created airplanes back at the beginning. No. Our creativity is the way that we participate with God in co-creating the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, it comes with responsibility. Yeah, yeah. That's right, that's the... That's the, the the challenge that goes alongside the grace is that, you know, it's like, yeah, all this unconditional love and acceptance and stuff, and that's amazing, but there's also a challenge to take responsibility for our own lives, you know, yes. and make good choices. Because yes. every choice we make is an act of creativity, effectively, you know. Right. Um, right. John, John, is a huge challenge to most church today because the, the church, sadly, is tending toward to listening to a Nicodemus voice more than, more than is helpful. Mm. And the, the Nicodemus voice is um, everything in creation is already determined. Um, the John voice is this is a new moment. Let's find out what the Spirit wants for us in this new moment. Mm, which is far more exciting, but also far more scary. 
It's better. I, I understand. It's it's safer to stay in the Nicodemus voice. Yeah, it is. But, you know, but that's not where spirit is. No, that's right. It's not where life is. You can't stay where you are. You have to keep going forward. Because if you're not, then you're just gonna you're gonna go back. You know. Um, the spirit yeah. never goes backwards. Absolutely, the spirit never goes backwards. I agree completely. Wow. So, okay. Uh, so, so, should we look at Luke here? Yeah, let's go to the, Yeah, it's interesting that Luke is the last one because obviously in the Bible it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, isn't it? But right. here, the fourth path is, is Luke. Um, how, we, how we mature in service. So, yeah, just unpack that a little bit. The, the reason for the sequence in the Bible is because we took the liturgical texts and we put them in the Bible when it was codified. And um, Christianity, for uh, from the fourth century through the seventh century, read the Gospels. The first year on a three-year cycle, the first year we read Matthew, the second year we read Mark, and the third year we read Luke. When did we read John? We read John in the hundred days of Lent and Easter every year. Okay. So. Um, our ancestors really intended us in some ways to read John with the other three. Okay. But they also recognized that in a linear sequence that John is the third path and Luke is the fourth. Okay. When, when we get to the end of John, which is this exalted visionary sense of who we can be, we, like Peter, are sent out to do the work. And the work is, okay, let's get it down to our everyday, ordinary lives. Mm. Um, it's like for, for, for the high ritual churches um, at the end of Sunday service, um, the last and the, and the fourth part of the service is the dismissal. Uh, here, in the, here in the States, in the Episcopal Anglican tradition, they have this beautiful phrase. The deacon at the end of uh, at the end says, "The worship is over; the service has begun." And literally, it is. Don't you stay in church one more moment? Get out of here and get back to the to the life that you came here to be to receive the grace to be more filled, so you could accomplish your mission. And the, the mission is to live with our spouses and to live in our civic communities, uh, to live in our friendships and our, with our governments in a new way, to live by a greater value. And, but we realize that, that that's not going to get a lot of us uh, pats on the back. So what's happening for Luke's community is, um, here now is the Christian community at the first moment of being separated from Judaism. Mm -hmm. We've gone through this very horrible mutual divorce. And we're bereft because sometimes in Jewish families, um, the mother or the father said to their child, if you're Christian, I no longer recognize you as a son or a daughter. Uh, it's this, as a Lebanese immigrant, I totally understand it is this ancient, hurtful, Middle Eastern tradition of if you don't believe in the way I believe, then I ritually, emotionally kill you. And what's happened in the 80s of the first century is that Judaism has said to the Christians, we, we no longer recognize you as being alive. We no longer recognize you as being Jewish. And a Jewish family with a, a Christian member, they're going to have a funeral service, and they're going to create a, a tombstone in the cemetery, and they will never, ever speak uh, to that member of the family again. Gosh. So Luke wants us as a Christian community to not become embittered uh, and also to not lose our Judaism. Just because there's a part of Judaism that is saying to us, you're not Jewish, doesn't mean that you have to accept their category. Secondly, mm. because Judaism has said formally we're no longer part of their tradition, 
the emperor now looks out at us and goes, oh no, we've got a problem. I've got a problem. The emperor of Rome does not like creativity. The emperor of Rome does not like vitality, does not like diversity. The emperor of Rome has kept his empire at quote-unquote peace. Mm. And I hope nobody will think that the peace of Augustus is something to be emulated. The peace of Augustus was, I have brought my, the people of my empire to an inch away from starvation. So they're so weak, they wouldn't dare rise up against my army. That's mm. the peace of Augustus. Wow. <laughs> and so he's now going to bring the full force of the empire's oppression on this Christian group that has dared to say, we choose liberty, vitality, creative thinking, justice, care for the poor. We choose to treat slaves as people rather than animals. We choose to share wealth. We choose to raise up the status of women. None of this is values that the emperor wants to have happening in the empire because he understands if this happens, his rule is over, or at mm. least threatened. Yeah, absolutely. So he's got to eradicate us. Mm. Well, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's how subversive, you know, the message of Jesus is. That's what, you know, um, it threatened empires, doesn't it? You know, and we see that today. <laughs> um, so every time we think we're up against something which we cannot turn around, and there's a lot of that thinking going on today. We have this powerful gospel, and we have this story at the beginning where Mary gives us her prayer. And this prayer is one of the most unusual texts in all, in all of Scripture. Because if you look at what Mary does in this prayer, which is at the beginning of this gospel, nothing has changed yet in the world. Mm. And yet... She prays the past, she prays the future as if it's already happened. Mm. Yeah. Now, you know, today Mary's prayer is we're facing enormous challenges with climate change. We're facing enormous obstacles with diversity. Now, without forsaking uh, a passion for doing the work of justice. Mary is saying to us, I want you to pray as if it's already a done deal. I want you to go out and work as if it's already happened. How, how can you... Christians took up this change of the Roman Empire and they were killed for 225 years before the emperor was finally no more. Now what's... What's the strength of a spiritual vitality that will allow you to do the work at such a level? One heart, one heart, one heart, one heart, one heart, one heart. Knowing that if we all just do our small part, that somehow God's miracle will, will take care of the rest. Yeah, to serve as if it's already happened well jesus said didn't he i don't know if it's in luke or not but jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here now yeah you know yeah so we're meant to live as if it's real now because it is in a sense it is, it and, is. We're, and we're meant to create that you know that's part of our you know what we're talking about in john that's like co-creators you know creating the kingdom of heaven here now you know and yet it already is here now and you know it's this kind of um yeah, that's and that's. Yeah, and, I mean, one of the most powerful things in the world is the happy warrior. When you think of Nelson Mandela, uh, think of Tutu. Mm. Uh, perhaps yeah. in some ways, perhaps in some ways, think of Pope Francis. But these people who seem to have uh, an inexhaustible source of joy, no matter what they're up against. Mm. And, it's, and there would be those of us who would say, but don't you understand the dire circumstances that we're in? And, and I do understand the dire circumstances of today. But 
the Christ is actually is asking us to all be happy warriors. To give to give our best every day, but to know at the end that if we all just do our small part, God's miracle will happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. I can't figure it out. I don't know the mechanism. I don't know the timetable. And I know it certainly looks like today on the planet we're up against it. And it almost seems improbable that it can be turned around. And yet that's exactly the reality that every line of Luke leads us to. I love one of the differences in Luke between Mark. Mark, Mark's community is preparing to go die at the Circus Maximus. Mm. Luke's community knows that they're involved in a long, 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 gradual process of transforming the Roman Empire. Mark's text says, pick up your cross and follow me. Luke's text says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Mm. Yeah. I also, I also want to say that I think Luke is saying, and at nighttime, put the cross down. Go have fun. Dance. Rest. Um, it cannot be uh, the work 24-7, yes. 5. That's interesting because Mark, in Mark we have the immediacy of, you know, when you pick up your cross, you're literally going to be picking up your cross and being taken to be killed. Right. Yeah, that day. Yeah. Um, whereas with uh, Luke, it's, you know, just... Keep going every day. You won't have a resolution right now. You know, you don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know what the end game is. Just keep going every day. Pick it across every single day. And trust me. Yeah. Yeah, You see that in another way between Luke and Matthew. In Matthew, in the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, Matthew's text reads, And pray for your daily bread. And Luke's changes just just inverts the sequence and says, "Pray for your bread daily." And he, what Luke keeps bringing us back to is now, right now. Don't look down the road. You look down the road, you're going to get discouraged. You look down the road, you're going to get tired and bitter and resentful. Today, 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 today. Do what you have to do today, but also see the joy, see the beauty, see the flowers, smile. Today. This is where the rain is. Yeah, that's amazing. Just one thing, because obviously Luke wrote Acts, didn't he? As part, it almost, yes. I think they're, they're kind of like one book, in a sense. They are one book. Um, so, how does does Acts get included in this, or is that um, is, is Acts kind of set apart from well, from this? I mean, Acts did not get included in the Sunday Gospel readings. But if you will read like a, one of the invitations here, read the first two chapters of Luke. Read the first two chapters of Acts. Read the next two chapters of Luke. Read the next two chapters of Acts. I think what you'll discover is that they're parallel stories. Everything that Jesus the Christ does in the first half of the book, uh, Peter and Paul do and the disciples do in the second half. Mm, interesting. And the... Um, the word apostle means to be sent. And this text is literally, both Luke and the Acts, is the story of what we will do when we are sent. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, here's what Jesus did, and here's what we're going to do. You know, like, just the model, you know. It's just because I think sometimes when we I think sometimes when we talk about the Bible we we don't it's not just that we don't realize it was written by real people but that we don't actually realize that there was some underlying thought behind the whole structure of how it was written you know there wasn't just like this I know I wrote down this story I wrote down the story of Jesus today <laughs> you know it was it wasn't just like a chronological because nowadays we think on a very linear chronological you know kind of thing. When we write a story, we kind of, when did it happen? What time did it happen? What order did it happen in? Right. You know, but when it was, when this was written, there was a bigger, bigger story going on. The way they wrote things was different and it's, there's much, there's, there's a different level to it than just the chronological telling of the story. So I want to invite 
everyone that's listening to this to do one thing, which I think is one of the most radical things that we can do when we read the Gospels. And that is um, not change, not just change pronouns, but read it, take out the past tense and read it as present tense. Read every account in the Gospel as present tense. This is happening right now. It's not, and Jesus said, it is, and Jesus says, and the disciples respond. And um, this is an eternal story. That's the, the significance of the prologue of John is that what happens in one moment of time happens in every moment of time. This story is happening in you right now. <laughs> that's... Yeah, that's that's amazing. It's amazing to think of it like that. You know, it's very it's, funny for me when when I go out and I'm, and I'm with communities. Um, I'll read a story, and the only thing I do is I put the story. I, I'll read the story straight out of the uh, NRSV, and I just change the tense to present moment. And suddenly, people say, "I've never heard that story before." When you know they've heard that story hundreds of times before. But as soon as we use a past tense word, something in of us, in of us, something in us, makes it history lesson rather than living spiritual practice. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be trying that for sure. Um, definitely, that sounds a um, that sounds a great idea. Yeah, well, felt we're barely getting started, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and I'd love to have you back here and, and talk about this a lot more, and maybe talk about each gospel in a bit more detail. You know, um, that'd be really great. And uh, can I just mention the name of the book again? And of course, yeah. my website. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I was going to ask. That was my next question. <laughs> so the, the book, Heart and Mind, it's on Kindle, and it's on Kindle Word, Worldwide English. Uh, Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation. And um, there is a website, which is quadratus, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S.com. And on that website, or um, this podcast will be on that website, if, if you so give me permission. Uh, all yeah, the, yeah. the ones with Rob Bell are on there. Uh, there are videos of me in conversation at National Cathedral uh, in the United States and also Grace Cathedral in the United States. Uh, there are uh, blogs on particular gospel passages. And there is a Quadratus store, and in the Quadratus store are the companion guides to go along with reading the book. And what we discovered a few years ago is if people will not just read this book but just begin to talk about it with one other person, or two or three or four or five, but just one person, the book changes from about someone else to my story. And that's my hope, is that we will stop reading the gospel as just about Jesus' story and understand this is about the spiritual journey that every Christian makes. This is my story. This is our story. Yeah. So the guides are there for uh, $9.99 U.S. I'm not sure what that relates to in the pound these days. But I, I hope that's a very economical price. And really encourage people to go to the website and download uh, the guides. Yeah, I've, I've got, I've, I've kind of back that up. I've, um, I've been to your website and uh, I've got the book as well. And definitely, definitely do do that. Go and get that book. Uh, heart and mind. Get the get all the downloads. Check out the website. Um, yeah, just yeah, one last invitation, uh, and especially because your name is James, and that is um, <laughs> each fall time I lead a pilgrimage for a select group uh, on the Camino in Spain, and uh, there, our next pilgrimage starts in September. And there's information about that on the website, and I. We, we are limited to no more than 12 pilgrims, uh, but I'd be delighted if somebody that's listening to me right now might feel the call to, to do this walk with me. Wow, that sounds fantastic. In Spain, did you say? Yeah, the Camino. Oh, wow. 
Sounds good. Sounds good. I might check that out myself. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> if the budget allows it. Um, but um, thank you for, for sharing with us today, Alexander. It's been so, so good. Just absolutely blind-blowing, you know. And I think we've only scratched the surface, to be honest. But uh, It's a delight. It's an honour. Um, and I want to say hello to a whole series of new friends across the UK. Yeah, it'd be great. hopefully you can come here one day. That'd be great. I'm uh, ready. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, thank you, Alex Alexander. And um, I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I have and learned as much as I have. It's just been mind-blowing today. So um, take care, everyone, and we will talk soon.